And man, I neglected to acknowledge during our announcements that our youth got back from a retreat. They uh, were gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. In fact, our whole worship team was on that retreat, and they were here early this morning, as, along with many of the other volunteers there setting up, and so grateful for them. Pastor Rod was preaching during that time, and it was, uh, it was just a, a joy. I know our, our youth enjoyed it, and it was the first one uh, for our church, so it was kind of a, a historic banner uh, moment for us as a church body. Uh, but on that, that, uh, that retreat, they, they went to a, an Airbnb, and there happened to be a, a golf hole uh, at this Airbnb. So on the way out of the house, my son, who uh, is, I think, serving over in kids' ministry, he should be at least, otherwise we're going to have a discussion afterwards. He, uh, he tells me on the way out, hey, Dad, I'm going to take your golf clubs. I said, okay, go for it. He said, I'm going to hit a hole in one. I said, okay. So he goes on the retreat, and uh, Thursday night happens. Friday morning, I wake up to this text. All caps. Dad, I hit a hole in one. What? I'd like to say that I immediately believed my son. But as the title of this sermon might imply, I thought that this was a little bit unbelievable. I said, really? He said, Dad, I promise. Turns out he did. And that is something that you would think, what? He called it and then hit a hole in one. That's unbelievable. The problem is unbelief lies to us. You're familiar, I assume, with the story of the boy who cried wolf. That eventually, after so many times crying wolf, the, the, the people stopped believing the child. Well, there's the opposite of that story, too, which is the person that's always disbelieving. The person that's always skeptical. The person that, when confronted with reality, confronted with truth, denies it and refuses to believe it. That's the type of people that we encounter in John chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be finishing up John chapter 5. Jesus has been interacting with the Jews, as John calls them, which are his opponents. And he's healed the paralytic at Bethesda and then had the, the head-to-head with this group where he made all of these statements clear about his identity as God. And as we come to this text, he's going to tackle their unbelief. And as he tackles their unbelief, he's going to tackle our unbelief as well. And we need to understand that unbelief left unchecked is the greatest threat to humanity. Believer and unbeliever alike. Unbelief left unchecked is the greatest threat to humanity. For the unbeliever, unbelief left unchecked leads them to the great white throne and the final judgment which casts them into an eternity under the wrath of God. For the believer, unbelief left unchecked hinders their sanctification, their growth in Christ's likeness and forfeits eternal reward when we stand before him at the Bema Seat of Christ. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 5, if you will. And as you do that, I want to discuss, there's really two different types of unbelief that we can think about. There's two different camps or categories. And the first one is what I'm calling the affliction of unbelief. The affliction of unbelief is that unbelief that comes along with feeling unsure or doubting uh, your standing with God, uh, doubting your salvation, uh, questioning, could God forgive me for this? Could, is, is Romans 8.1 true? There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Is that true of me still? This is, I call it the affliction of unbelief because it's something that happens to us. Now, it can happen to us because of something that we've done, sin that we need to confess and repent of and get rid of in our lives, but this is different because this is unbelief that happens to us. And the Bible answers this type of unbelief with passages like Romans 8.1. 
that there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it answers this type of unbelief in passages like Ephesians 2, 4, that God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It answers this unbelief in passages like Romans 5, where Paul says, we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God when Christ died for us. This type of unbelief is answered with the word of God. But the second type of unbelief, and this is the unbelief that we find in our passage this morning, is the choice of unbelief. This is not unbelief that happens to us. This is unbelief that we willingly engage in. This is the unbelief that looks at the truth of God's word, that looks at facts, that looks at reality and says, you know what, I choose not to believe. This is the unbelief that plagued the Jews, that plagued the Pharisees that Jesus was engaging with. And this is where we pick up in John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That may sound familiar to you if you've been with us, because in verse 19, back in John chapter 5, 19, he says something that's almost verbatim. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And so here, Jesus is bookending this section of verses 19 through 30, where he has been making bold-faced claims to being equal to the Father. In fact, you remember John chapter 5, verse 23. In fact, it's right there. If you'll look back up the page, he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. I think that's the pinnacle of this argument that Jesus is making, that the worship that's due the Father is the same worship that's due the Son. And so Jesus has been arguing that he and the Father are one, they're equal. And here in verse 30, he bookends this argument and then transitions into his answering the objections of the Pharisees. A good sermon will always seek to answer the objections of those that are listening to it. And Jesus, as he's preaching, if I can put it that way, to this audience, he's anticipating the fact that they're going to protest, that, that he's making these statements, and he's making all of these claims, and he's claiming to be God, but it's just him. Where's the extra witnesses? Where are the others? Where's the evidence supporting this claim? In a way, the rest of John chapter 5 puts us in a courtroom with Jesus as the one providing the evidence to us as the jury and asking us, will you believe? Verse 31, he says this, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 17, 6, Deuteronomy 19, 15, in Numbers 35, verse 30, all three of those passages make the argument that a claim or a fact or a charge has to be established by more than one witness. We're going to see this later on with the trial of Jesus, because the Pharisees were struggling to find two people whose testimony of, of Jesus' fault or error agreed, and the reason being because there was no legitimate testimony. So they were struggling to find two people whose lies could agree so that then they could charge Jesus with something worthy of death. You see, for somebody to say, this is what happened, it had to be validated by two or more witnesses. In fact, if my son had hit that hole-in-one on a golf course and gone back to the clubhouse and he had said, hey, I hit a hole-in-one on what, whatever hole, such and such a hole, the pro shop would say, were there any witnesses? And if not, it's not valid. They're not going to validate it because of the skepticism of the culture in which we live. Well, that skepticism is nothing new. It reaches back all the way to the Old Testament. And they're saying for something to be established as factual, as truth, we need more than one witness. And so Jesus says, that's why he says, if I alone, if I, I myself, is what it says in the Greek, bear witness about myself, 
then my testimony is not true. Well, he's not saying that if he didn't provide the witnesses that he's about to provide, that we shouldn't believe him. He's just acknowledging the understanding in the culture at the time. In fact, that's why he says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So here he's making the argument, look, it's, it's not that my testimony by itself is, is untrue because my testimony by itself isn't really by itself. That's what he's been saying from verse 19 to 30. He's been saying, I and the Father are one. I do nothing on my own. In other words, I'm never going to go rogue from the will of the Father, from the, 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 the understanding of what the Father wants me to do. I'm going to always do that which the Father wants me to do. So as I speak, I speak the words of the Father. As I do the works, I do the works of the Father. So Jesus in verse 32 is saying, yeah, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But even just my witness about myself isn't just my witness alone because there's another who bears witness with me, and that's the Father. And so he's pointing to this and he's stressing that what he's about to lay out for them in the witnesses that will follow, this isn't him being defensive. This isn't Jesus standing in front of the Jews going, nah. This is Jesus condescending to the unbelief of his opponents, saying, okay, I'll play on your playing field for a moment. And that's where we turn to the witnesses. You'll notice in your page there's five points. You may be thinking, what in the world did I get myself into this morning? We will move th through them quickly, I promise. But there's five points because we see four testimonies, four distinct voices that Jesus appeals to, and then a fifth point that we'll talk about, why does any of this matter? But verse 33, as he continues, the first witness that we find there, Jesus says this, you sent to John, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Okay, in John's gospel, anytime we read the name John, who's he talking about? John the Baptist. The author, John, never appeals to himself or, or, or speaks of himself by his given name. So anytime you read John in John's gospel, it's not John the apostle, John the author, it's John the Baptist. So he's saying, you sent to John the Baptist, and he has testified. He's borne witness. You'll notice that that phrase, witness, that word, or to, to give witness, to bear witness, to give testimony, appears time and time again in our passage. It's, it's really a thematic word in this section. So he's saying, you sent to John, and he has borne witness. It's in the passive voice, or the perfect voice, rather, meaning it's something that took place in the past, but it has ongoing offense, uh, effects still in the present. You went to John and heard what he had to say, and that still remains true, in other words. Well, what was John's testimony? We find John's testimony back in verses like John 1.15 where it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There's John bearing witness to the eternality of Jesus. John was older than Jesus. So for John to say that Jesus ranks before him because he was before him, well, from birth order, that doesn't make any sense because John was the older one. But John's saying that Jesus existed before him because Jesus is eternal. So here you see that John is agreeing with Jesus' testimony that Jesus has already given. So Jesus says, you sent to John, John bore witness about me. If you want the fuller version of John's testimony, go back later on and read verses 19 through 28. This is where the Jewish... The, the Jewish delegation is sent to John from the Pharisees. And then they say, hey, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And you get John's testimony about himself and about Jesus. And then you get John the next day saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So he's saying, you sent to John, you've heard John's voice, John's testimony. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, Jesus is again repeating and emphasizing, not that this makes what I'm saying more true than it already was, but I'm doing this for your sake. He says, so that you might be saved, so that you might believe. Again, Jesus is condescending to to come down and play on their playing field. Continuing his, his appeal to John, he was, verse 35, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the light. But he was a reflection of the light. And that's what Jesus is saying. He was a burning and shining lamp. In fact, many see an allusion in Jesus' words here to Psalm 132, verse 17, which says this, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah. And so in Psalm 132, 17, God is saying that he's gonna provide a lamp for his Messiah. Jesus, back in our passage, says of John, he was a burning and shining lamp. And he says, and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a little while. John's gospel doesn't give us the full picture, but we see it in other accounts where Matthew's gospel says that all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of the Jordan were going out to to John. John was creating quite the stir. He had, had come on the scene and was announcing things that was creating in people's heart a messianic fervor. They were excited. They were going out to be John, to John to be baptized for the repentance of their sins so that they would be ready for the Messiah to come and set up the kingdom. In fact, so much so that even the Pharisees went out to John. You remember when John sees the Pharisees coming, he says, hey, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John was, was there. People were excited about what John was saying until they realized the one that John was pointing to was this poor carpenter, son of a carpenter from Nazareth and not the conquering king that they were expecting. Then all of a sudden, nobody really wanted John or John's testimony anymore. Unbelief crept in. Unbelief lies. So in the face of this first witness, the, the witness of John preparing the way for the Messiah, the, the problem, the reason people didn't believe John is that their expectations of a Messiah were different than the expectation, than the, the reality of the Messiah that John was announcing, that John was introducing. So as we think about unbelief, how unbelief can creep into our lives, Christians, it's the same thing for us. We can have expectations that are out of keeping with what God's expectations, God's reality is for our lives. So our first point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Beware the unbelief of unmet expectations. Beware the unbelief of unmet expectations. I don't know if you've ever expected God to show up in a certain way or do something or produce something or whatever for you and had that not be the reality, the impact that that made on you. I remember for me, uh, my, the summer before my freshman year in, or my senior year rather, in high school, I used to go to Pine Cove Christian Camps in Tyler, Texas. Um, and would go out there each summer and spend a week out there. And it, it was one of the best weeks of my life. I loved it. I was with my friends. I, we had a great time. It was so good. And you had that, that, you guys know the spiritual high of going to a camp and you, you just feel like, man, this is great. And you have that mountaintop experience and this is awesome. So this was my last summer at Pine Cove and it had made such an impact on my life. And man, things were just hard in my life at that time, hard at home, difficult for me. And I was so looking forward to this week at camp and I went and it absolutely let me down. It absolutely let me down. 
There was no spiritual high. There was no mountaintop experience. And I just felt dry and distant the whole week. And it just left me deflated and disappointed, frustrated, angry with God. I felt like he owed me these things. Y'all, when our expectations of what God will do for us aren't anchored to who he is and what his word says, we can find ourselves in that same spot, frustrated with God, disappointed, questioning his goodness, frustrated that our plans aren't becoming reality. People came to John charged with messianic excitement, but they wanted a Messiah of their own making. They wanted Jesus to be who they expected him to be. And that's not the Jesus that they got. What does this look like when this type of unbelief of unmet expectations creeps into our lives? Well, a couple things. It can look like this. It can look like us thinking, man, you know what? I, I thought my suffering was going to be done. I, I thought I would come to Jesus and life would just, all of a sudden, I, I wouldn't suffer anymore. Or maybe it looks like thinking, you know what? I, I thought that, that my marriage would get better. I thought, that, man, if, if I got saved, I thought if my spouse got saved, huh, then, then all of a sudden our marriage problems are going to go away. Or maybe it looks like thinking, you know what? I, I, I never thought I would lose my job. Man, I thought God loved me. I thought he provided for us. I thought he, he took care of those that, that are his. I never thought I would lose my job. Or maybe your unmet expectation looks like you hearing the cancer diagnosis. You think, man, I, I never thought. I, I'm a Christian. I never thought I would, I would hear you've got six months to live. Or maybe for you, it's thinking, man, I, I, I never thought my spouse would cheat on me. I'm a Christian. That's not supposed to happen to me. So are all examples of how unmet expectations can creep into our lives and bring unbelief along with it that causes us to doubt God, causes us to question him, that causes us to feel the discouragement that sidelines us, that takes us out of the game and, and, and puts us on one of those two benches that we talked about even last week. But guys, this can be more sneaky than even this, right? Because these are some big ticket items. But maybe unbelief for you looked like this morning. You had plans. You were coming to church. You were excited about it. And then you got in the car and you started fighting with your spouse. And now all of a sudden, your expectation of what this morning was going to look like has been derailed. And you're here this morning. You're just sitting there going, I just don't really feel like I'm here. I don't feel like I'm in it this morning. Or maybe for you, your unmet expectation was you came to church this morning and you were like, man, I, I, we sing this song and I love this song. And you got here and you didn't sing any of the songs that you love. And you've, you just kind of went through the motions during worship. And, and now you're frustrated while you're listening to this sermon this morning. So the unbelief of unmet expectations can creep in in subtle ways in our lives. And it derails us from what God has for us. Remember Luke 24, Jesus came up on the two on the road to Emmaus. He said, why so glum, chums? And they said, well, are you the only one who doesn't know this? And then they make this statement, which is one of the more tragic statements when they say this, we had hoped. You hear the shattering of the unmet expectations there. We had hoped he was going to be the Messiah as they're sitting there talking to the Messiah. Jesus corrects them by taking them to the word. 
Let me ask you this morning, Christians, are your expectations of what God has done, will do, wants to do for you biblical expectations? Are your expectations of your relationship with Jesus informed by Scripture more than they are by your heart, more than they are by what you want, what you would do? Think of the lives of some of the disciples of Jesus, Andrew crucified, Peter crucified, Paul beheaded, Thomas thrust through with spears, James stoned and then beaten to death with clubs. Talk about unmet expectations. If you get a moment this week, I would encourage you to look up the, the, the stories of some of the Marian martyrs. The Marian martyrs called that because they died for their faith under the reign of Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. And then think about what our expectations are of what we think our life in Christ should look like. And ask yourself, are my expectations biblical? Are they right? How many times, let me ask it from a different angle for us to, to, to shed some positive light on it. How many times have you looked back at a season where God didn't do what you expected or desired and felt grateful that he didn't? I mentioned that summer camp that I went to. God used my frustration to bring me to my knees to save me at that same camp. He used that time of me going, why does this feel so different to bring me to the end of myself and realize that I had been self-deceived into thinking I was okay when I never was. Sometimes our unmet expectations, oftentimes our unmet expectations turn out to be much better for us than we would have planned for ourselves. We need to remember when God doesn't do what we expect him to do or what we want from him, we need to remember that he's the one that knows best. The witness of John, the second witness then, is the witness of the works. He goes on in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So now Jesus is appealing to his miracles, or as John calls them, his signs. Why does John call them signs? Because they're referring to something, they're pointing to a significance that lay beyond the miracle itself. That's John chapter 20. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have eternal life. So John records all the miracles that he does in order that we might see something about Jesus that would instill in us a belief that he transcends just this magician, this, this powerful miracle worker on earth, but that he is the one that we can trust in for eternal life. And so Jesus says, you want another witness? Here's a third witness now for me. You have my witness. You have John's witness. Here's another one. Here's the witness of my works, the witness of my miracles. The problem is so many people misunderstood the purpose of the miracles. Remember in John chapter 2, that there were many that came to Jesus, and there were many who believed in him. But you remember what the commentary says there from John, the author? He says, but Jesus himself didn't believe in their belief. Because why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. In other words, he knew that the only reason why they wanted him was because they were entertained, because they, they thought, man, this is going to be good for us. This is going to benefit us to hang around with Jesus. Their commitment to Jesus was shallow. We're going to see this again when we look at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is going to do that, and then he's going to go across the lake, and, and that crowd's going to run around to the other side of the lake and be like, oh, funny meeting you here, Jesus. And Jesus is going to be like, you're not interested in me. You just want more food. 
People missed the point of Jesus' miracles. They were missing the point of Jesus' miracles at that point. It was producing in these people a shallow commitment to Jesus, a commitment that wasn't genuine. And that's another danger of unbelief as well for you and me today. Our second point this morning is beware the unbelief of shallow faith. Beware the unbelief of shallow faith. Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, if you just glance back up the page in your Bible, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In other words, you're impressed with what I've done so far? Just wait to the cross and the empty tomb. That's what's going to be the greatest work that I'm going to do. And all these things are meant to point there, but the problem was people just wanted, they wanted the shallowness from Jesus. They wanted the, the, the temporal benefits from Jesus. They wanted to be entertained by Jesus. Remember the parable of the soils, yes? There's two of the, the soils in there that, that show life and then die. The, the rocky soil, the, the seed hits there. It's not super deep, so the roots can't go down. So the life that comes up, when the sun comes down and beats on it, when the, the persecutions and the trials in the world come, man, that seed falls away. That's shallow faith. Or there's the, the seed that falls in the thorny soil. And, and here the seed, there, there's, it's, it's able to put down a little bit better roots, but it's grown up and it's having to compete with all of the, the cares and concerns of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And eventually that thorny soil, that, those thorns choke out the life of that seed and it, it dies. That's shallow commitment, shallow faith. We want to avoid that and beware the unbelief that produces that in our lives Many of those that are, were seeing the works that Jesus is here testifying to missed the greater reality that they were pointing to. They didn't lead them to faith and repentance. They led them to be entertained by Jesus and just want more from Jesus here and now. Y'all hear what that looks like here is the, in its most perverse form? Today is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Is, is the message that Jesus wants you to be as healthy as you can be here, wealthy as you can be here, and prosperous as you can be here. That's not promised to us anywhere in Scripture. Again, point number one is anchored to point number two because it's often our unmet expectations that produce shallow faith in our lives. Okay, well, we're not of the prosperity gospel. Okay, so, so is this really a threat to us today, Pastor? Yeah, it is because it can creep into our lives as well through some of those expectations that come in. And, and what we want from Jesus can be so shallow. We just want a life where, man, our Christianity doesn't run into any obstacles. We want the right president in office to make it easy for the church to exist. Is that a bad desire? No. But should that be our ultimate desire, y'all? No. Are we promised that? No, we're not promised that. We want a life where we move into our neighborhood and we find out that the houses all around us are all believers. So, oh man, that's great. We've got Christians all around us. Is that a bad desire to want to live next to Christians? No, but is it a bad thing for you to be put into a neighborhood where you've got unbelievers around you? That's a great thing. You've got an opportunity to preach the gospel to them now. See, we can fall into this shallow commitment when we think to ourselves, man, God just wants me comfortable in life. God just wants my family safe in life. God just wants me healthy in life. God just wants America to be great again. God just wants fill in the blank. These are built on some of the sandy foundations of our unmet expectations. And unmet expectations that produce shallow faith will inevitably lead to apostasy, falling away. 
there's a church, I won't call them out by name because that's not important, but there's a church and you go to their website and this is what greets you on their website. They define themselves as the incubator of greatness. If you go to Compass Bible Church, North Texas, compassntx.org, you're, you're not gonna find that on our head, head page there, our, our lead page. And then you go on and it says this, this is their purpose. They're leading people to discover God, develop themselves and be deployed into leadership with a biblical worldview. Listen, that's not necessarily wrong, but that's not why the church exists, right? We're not here to, to, to produce a better crop of leaders in the business world. That's not our goal. This is shallow, is what this is. This is not the depth of what God has for us. Listen, God, it's, it's not God's will for you, for your life to be easy and comfortable right now where you're at, church. We are strangers and aliens in this world. And the unbelief of shallow faith creeps in and says, I want to be home here. Jesus said, the way is hard. The way is, is, is difficult. In, in contrast, he said, the, the, the broad path is what? It's easy. If, if you want a Christianity that's easy, you don't want a Christianity that follows Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, church, take up your cross and follow me. And this is all coming back to you, the works, because the works were meant to show that Jesus is worth our faith and our trust no matter what. Not just that he could feed our bellies or calm the storm. This can be more subtle too, just like the other one. Maybe it's not the big ticket items. Maybe you're out there going, okay, I, I get it. I might not be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. I'm okay with that. But maybe this like you, looks like you hearing a message on evangelism and thinking, man, I agree that evangelism is important, but don't ask me to be the one who has to do it. Or maybe this looks like you saying, you know what, I was a part of that church and it was great, but then they started asking too much of me in my time, so we left and now we're here. I mean, I, I've heard that in talking to visitors before, and I cringe every time I hear that, y'all, because I'm just like, you have no idea what you're in for. The unbelief of shallow faith drifts away completely because of the unmet expectations we talked about back in point number one. And so this is a danger that we need to guard against, church. But it's not just the, the, the works. It's not just uh, the, the, the testimony of John. There's a third one here, and that's the divine witness. Look in verse 37. Now here's the specific witness to the Father. The Father who sent me as himself born witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, verse 37, we have another perfect verb here. It says, he himself has borne witness. This is in the past with ongoing effects. Some people think that this is referring back to the baptism of Jesus. That's not recorded in John's gospel, though it's possible that John the author might be appealing back to that. But I think more generally, he's just appealing to the general testimony of Scripture. He's saying, read the Bible, read the word of God. He's borne witness about me. This is something that has been and will continue to be and is ongoing right now. Think about the Old Testament, if you will, for a minute. Jesus says, his form you've never seen. Think about Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, all of the prophets. They either heard directly from God and saw his form or at least heard directly from God. Many of them saw the pre-incarnate Christ. Many of them saw his form. And here, Jesus, get the irony here, y'all. This is God in the flesh, literally. God here speaking to them. They're hearing God and seeing God, and yet Jesus is saying, you don't see God and you don't hear God. Because why? Because unbelief lies. 
because unbelief lies. And the unbelief that we're confronting here is the, the problem that these people thought that they were, they were okay when really they weren't. He says, you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Think about the makeup of these people listening to Jesus right now for a minute. Okay? It's not the Romans. It's not the Greeks. It's not the Egyptians. It's not the, the Canaanites. It's not the Muslims. Who is it? It's the Jews. It's the religious leaders of the Jews on top of that. It's the Pharisees. It's, it's the, the, the righteous of the righteous listening to Jesus tell them, you don't know God. Why? Because of unbelief. It's another form of unbelief that creeps in. It's the unbelief of thinking that you know God when you don't know God. We refer to it this way, church. It's the unbelief of self-deception. It's our third point. Beware the unbelief of self-deception. This was me for 11 years of my life. I prayed a prayer when I was seven years old and thought I was good to go, but really I was just excited that mom and dad were happy that I prayed a prayer. And then from seven to 18, I went about living my life. Everything was great. Everything was fine. I thought I was good. I was a good kid. I didn't have any big ticket sins. I had sins. But I thought I was okay. I went to church. I, I went to a private Christian school. I, I mean, I, I thought I was fine. I stayed away from all the stuff I was supposed to stay away from. In high school, I started in a youth group, started as a st student leader in the youth group. I served on the worship band for the youth group, all the while professing faith in Christ and all the while being eternally damned at that point in time in my life. I thought I was good, but I wasn't. Because what I was trusting in was being a good kid. I was trusting in not having the big ticket sins in my life. I was trusting in being on the student leadership team. I was trusting in serving on the worship team. I was trusting in winning the Bible award at school. I was a Pharisee, in other words. Self-deceived, thinking I was okay with God when I'm not okay with God. And that doesn't always look like self-righteousness, y'all. Sometimes that looks like you think you're okay with God because you're better than this person over here. Yeah, you've got problems in your life, but man, as long as I'm a good person, relatively speaking, God doesn't grade on a relative scale. And so we need to beware the unbelief of self-deception. What does this look like in our life? Well, maybe it looks like this. Maybe it looks like saying this, I'm okay with God because I've gone to church my whole life. Maybe it looks like saying, man, I've, I've read the Bible through 10 times. Maybe it looks like saying, I'm, I'm good with God because I've listened to thousands of sermons. Maybe it looks like saying, I'm good because I used to lead a Bible study. Maybe it looks like saying, Matt, I'm, I'm good because I was a deacon at my last church. Maybe it says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with God because my dad was a pastor and, and, and my grandpa before him, he was a pastor. Maybe it looks like saying, I'm, I'm good because I vote Republican. Listen, y'all, self-deception is one of the greatest threats in this culture because everybody's a Christian here. And I hope you hear the irony in that statement because that's impossible. There are going to be plenty of people that spend eternity in hell who read the Bible 10, 12, 15, 20 times. 
There are going to be plenty of people in hell who showed up at church every single Sunday morning. There are going to be plenty of people in hell who were on the student leadership team in their high school. There are going to be plenty of people in hell who led Bible studies. Y'all, there are going to be people in hell that stood behind pulpits week in and week out and preached the word. On that note, I mean, this is still a a, a temptation for, for me as a pastor. To think that I'm okay because of my title. To think that I'm okay because, man, I, I study the word for a living. I can't export my relationship with Christ to my study, guys. And that's what it comes down to. Overcoming the unbelief of self-deception is having a relationship with Jesus. Repenting from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior, that he died on the cross from your, for your sins. He gave you his full righteousness. He's risen from the dead so that you will live with him forever. That's what it is to be saved. That's the third witness. The fourth witness, then, is a biblical witness. The divine witness is seen in the biblical witness, or the biblical witness is seen in the divine witness. They go hand in hand together. Look at verse 39, though. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. You search the scriptures. The word in the Greek there means to turn over the rocks. You are doing diligent study, examining, investigating, and remember who he's talking to here. These are not the chumps. These are the Pharisees, the experts in the law. In fact, Josephus called them rigorists of the Torah. Rigorists of the Torah. These men had memorized the Torah. They knew it backwards and forwards. And yet, they missed what they were pointing to. So much so had these men known the word of God, the the, the scriptures, that they had even developed a commentary on God's word and extra laws that they added to make sure that they didn't disobey God's word. These men knew it. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We read that through our Christianized eyes and we think to ourselves, well, of course my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees because my righteousness is Christ's righteousness. But for the original audience of the Sermon on the Mount, they would have been slack-jawed hearing that because these guys were the righteous of the righteous. Remember Paul's own testimony? As to the law, what did he say? Blameless. Not that he was sinless, but Paul was going, man, I, I know the law and I search myself all the time and I make sure that I don't have sin. When I do, I get rid of it. These guys knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And Jesus is saying, and, and, and by the way, you want another witness? It's, it's something that you're super familiar with. It's the scriptures. They that testify about me. And yet, what? You refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life. It's not that they didn't study the scriptures. It's that they did and they didn't believe what the scriptures were there to produce in their lives. And so in the end, he indicts them for making the study of scriptures an end in and of itself. Just like the miracles weren't an end in and of themselves for us to be entertained or fed or anything else, but they were to point us to something deeper. Y'all, the study of God's word is not an end in and of itself so that we'll be wiser and more knowledgeable. 
The study of God's word is meant to point us to Jesus, deepen our relationship with Jesus, make us, like we sang earlier tonight, today, more like Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about uh, the, the, the Jews in, in some of the same terms here. In Romans chapter 10, he says, I bear them, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Israel, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's recognizing, man, they know their stuff, but they don't know what God wants them to know for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's what the scriptures are meant to reveal, and that is found in Christ. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's pulling back the curtain on the problem that all of the study of the scriptures, the, the unbelief that that produced, that we need to be on guard against as well this morning, church, is the unbelief of pride. They went to the word of God, and rather than allowing the word of God humbly to be used as a medium in the hands of the Spirit to conform us more to the image of Christ, sometimes the word of God just becomes the end in and of itself. And if that's what it becomes for us, just like for the Pharisees, we fall and pray to this same unbelief. It's our fourth unbelief, our final unbelief before we get to the so what. It's beware the unbelief of pride. Beware the unbelief of pride. Again, the experts in the law, and Jesus is saying, you don't know the scriptures. Let me give you another witness about who I am, that what I've said I am, verses 19 through 30, is true. Have you, have you read the Bible? <laughs> what does this unbelief look like for us today? It looks like this. Maybe it's saying, man, you know what? I've got a unique position on that matter that nobody else really holds. Anytime I hear that, that's a warning flag, y'all. Anytime I hear somebody that, that's, that's like, well, I don't really like, to, like labels, it's okay to wear a label. It's okay. We know that you don't believe every tenet of Calvinism. That's fine. You can tell somebody that you're a Calvinist and not have people pick up stones. I, I hope, I hope. You're in good company, by the way, if that's you here. Or maybe it looks like saying, man, I'm, I'm so glad that God brought me to this church because I have so much to offer everybody else here. Or maybe it's sitting there listening to a sermon thinking, man, this sermon is great for this person over here. Our sending pastor used to call that an L-shaped amen. You hear the truth and you point at somebody else. You're going, man, this is, this is great. Yeah, keep coming, God, because this is great for this person over here. Instead of saying, man, how does this impact my life? Or maybe the unbelief of pride creeps in and says, man, I should be a community group leader. I, I should be a leader. I should be in that position. Or maybe the unbelief of pride creeps in and says, ah, man, they sang that song. I wouldn't sing that song. But again, this can be more subtle and insidious than those things even. Which I started and didn't finish. There's all of them. <laughs> How about the way that we talk about other churches? Listen, guys, I, I hope and pray that you love our church. I love our church. And I think what we do here is awesome and excellent. We want to keep striving after those things. But hear me say this. There are other good, awesome, excellent churches in this area that are preaching the word of God. And so before we slander another church or before we slander other believers, let's check ourselves to make sure that it's not coming from a heart of pride. There are times to warn somebody to say, you know what, I, I'm concerned about the church that you're attending right now because I don't think there's a biblical gospel being proclaimed there. Or there are some second-tier issues that maybe we would have a conversation about. But even then, we've got to be careful and guard our hearts in that, too. What's the danger in all of this? 
okay, all of these unbelief things, but, but if I'm in Christ, does it really matter? What's the so what? Well, that's what he answers in the rest of this. The, the greatest danger is that this unbelief is going to leave us outside the kingdom. The greatest danger is that unbelief in the life of an unbeliever will leave them at the great white throne, destined for an eternity under the wrath of God. But lest you let yourself off the hook, Christian, there's a danger for us as well. Unbelief left unchecked in our life, Christian, will lead us to a slower growth in Christ's likeness, and it will show up at the bema seat of Christ that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And our, our unbelief, as we give ourselves over to these four types of unbelief and others, it, it will cause us to forfeit reward on that day. And so as we look at the remainder of this, it's important for us to ask this question, does this really matter? It does matter. Look at verse 41. Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't hear me being petty in trying to defend myself here. I'm not just trying to get you guys to be like, oh, well, Jesus is so great. Look at how great Jesus is. He's saying, in other words, this is not about my individual ego because he was always about the glory of the Father, right? Contrast that with them, verses 42 and following. But I know you don't have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. Jesus is alluding to the fact that there have been other professing messiahs that had come on the scene that had come on the scene boasting of themselves and they were all the eager, more eager to, to, to welcome them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, they, they were willing to receive these messiahs and as long as the messiahs were all about them and building them up and building up the, the identity of Israel and being like, it's time for us to get our glory back. Let's go. They were all behind that. But a messiah coming in saying, no, it's really, it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. He's saying that, that 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 they couldn't stand. And then he goes on and he says this, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Pharisees, experts in the law, Moses, the human author of the law, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the, the so what. It's this last portion here. There's another who accuses you. Moses, on whom you set your hope. See, here's the thing, church. Your unbelief, in a paradoxical way, reveals what it is you actually do believe in. Your unbelief reveals what you have put your hope in. And just like Jesus to the Pharisees, Jesus to us would say this this morning, whatever lies at the root of your unbelief will be what accuses you on that day. And so as maybe you've identified some different areas as we've walked through these things this morning saying, ooh, yeah, that, I get that, that feel, I feel that, that's been me. Or maybe you've, you've identified just this morning saying once again because you've said it every single time that you show up here, yep, I'm, I'm not a believer, I don't believe This morning's the morning to do something about it. Our fifth and final point this morning is repent while there's still time. Repent while there's still time. Christian, this is for you. Repent of the unbelief that's slowing you down in your relationship with Christ. 
Whatever that looks like, whether that's the unmet expectations or a shallow faith that you need to deepen and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm all in, out of power, anything, any place, any time. If, if I'm going to be a Marian martyr, then I'll be a Marian martyr. Whatever you want from me, Jesus, I'll start by knocking on my neighbor's door this morning. Or maybe it's, man, I, you sitting out there this morning saying, I, I realize that if somebody said, why are you a believer, that my answer would be because I've always gone to church. Maybe you're self-deceived. And God's opening your eyes this morning to see that the time is now to repent from that unbelief and to realize that you need that relationship with Jesus that comes from repentance and faith, trusting that he died on the cross for your sins and gave you his full righteousness and rose from the dead so that you will live with him forever. Whatever it is that is your unbelief, let's get rid of it this morning because unbelief lies. Unbelief lies. The other story to the boy who cried wolf, the person that's always doubting, the person that's always questioning, the person that's always skeptical. Unbelief is a threat to the believer and unbeliever alike. And we have to guard against the damage that it can do to our relationship with Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your word, your kindness, your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus and his clarity, his truthfulness. Lord, I thank you that Jesus was anything but ambiguous. I thank you, thank you that he was so clear and that he gave a, a call that was just a clarion call to us to hear the truth of his word and to believe in it. God, I, I recognize that there are temptations that abound for us to fall prey to unbelief in our lives. Even just living in the world in which we live, a world that so often scoffs at Christianity that scoffs at biblical Christianity, that scoffs at true discipleship. There's the temptation to, to compromise. There's the temptation to put a damper on our Christianity in order to not have to suffer the derision or the side eye or the mockery or the laughter. God, we want to be people that are anchored to faith. We want to be believers and to own that title for every facet in every arena in every square inch of our lives. That we wouldn't just be believers when we show up on Sunday or just be believers in the things that are easy to believe, the things that are palatable, but Lord, that you would deepen our faith, that you would instill in us a commitment to you that guards against unbelief in every way that it might show its head. And so God, help us to be like that. Lord, as believers, we want unbelief to be eradicated from our lives so that you can continue to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, as we were about to sing again, that we want to be more like Jesus. May that be true of us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.